here I am. <laughs> it feels so natural and yet so unnatural in another sense. I'm not, I'm not used to this. It's good to be here and I am grateful for the privilege to share God's word with you. But it always reminds me whenever I preach of what a weighty responsibility it is. Uh, this morning, <clears throat> the words I plan to share with you, I hope and pray that they are not just my words, that they are the words that our God and Savior and the head of our church, Jesus Christ, wants for all of us to hear. <clears throat> and I think that my main Emphasis, uh, the reason I chose this passage, it's interesting because when I was your pastor, I would preach through Bible books as Pastor Thomas does. And so I didn't really have to choose what I was going to preach. I had to preach what was in the Bible book that I was in. And so this uh, morning, when Pastor Thomas asked me to share God's word with you, I was challenged with the question, what do I believe God wants me to share? And so the passage that I've chosen this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Pastor Thomas preached on this exact same passage two years ago and did a fantastic job of bringing the truth of this passage to us. Um, my approach is a little bit different this year, two years later, and um I would encourage you after today to go back and listen to Pastor Thomas's sermon on it as well. It's, uh, it would be good in combination with what I'm about to share with you this morning. But before we get into it, I want to read it, and I'm going to ask you once again to stand in honor of the Word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Father in heaven, as we look into your word this morning, we ask that you would instruct our minds and hearts in such a way that we would be changed, Lord, that we would become more like your son Jesus Christ, that we would be faithful children of God. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you have ever read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? Okay. Not not that many. Less than uh, 
than half. You see, no, the movies, if you, if you watch the original BBC productions from years and years ago, they were pretty close to the book, but the more recent Disney versions were a disappointment, and obviously, as a result, they haven't made any more. But uh, I read recently that uh, Netflix has bought the rights to it, so may, maybe they will do a better job if they decide to do it, I don't know. But if you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, they are for children, but they are for adults. And we read them to our kids when they were little, and I would encourage you to take the time to do it. But in the very first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, little Lucy Pavenzi and her two older brothers and her older sister are evacuated from London during the time of the Blitz, early in World War II, when Germany was bombing the city of London. And uh, they are sent to the country to live with an old professor who lives in a large house, and he's virtually by himself. He has people who serve him there, but he's virtually by himself. And while Lucy and her siblings are exploring the house, they find a large room that has only one piece of furniture in it. And that furniture is a big wardrobe. Since the room is somewhat empty, the older siblings lose interest and go on to explore other parts of the house. But Lucy is intrigued, and she decides to check and see if the wardrobe is unlocked. Of course it is. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a story, would there? (laughs) It's unlocked, and she goes into the wardrobe and works her way toward the back, where she suddenly stumbles into the land of Narnia. I tell you what, this I want to read them again, just talking about it. She stumbles into the land of Narnia, and there she meets a fawn. A fawn is a half-man and a half-goat. He's From the waist up, he's a man. From the waist down, he's a goat. And this fawn's name is Tumnus. She calls him Mr. Tumnus. And there's more to her encounter with Mr. Tumnus than uh, is relevant for us this morning, but... What is relevant for us is that eventually she learns from Mr. Tumnus that the white witch has cast a spell on Narnia so that it is exactly always winter and never Christmas. This phrase that C.S. Lewis employs, always winter, And never Christmas is a metaphor for the condition of our world. It conjures up a picture in our minds of harshness, coldness, struggle, with little or no relief. And reflecting on this phrase, Dr. Stephen Garber writes this, These are words that capture our imaginations. Often from the very first time we hear them, I confess that when I read this so long ago, I understood them, though now years later I understand them so much more fully. 
At the first reading, they made sense of my life and world, young as I was. Now I have lived with them and within them for most of my life, and I feel their weight deeply. Like every other son of Adam and daughter of Eve, I feel the winter of this weary world. But if you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that in the midst of Narnia's endless winter, there are those who still have hope. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver come to mind. Those of you who have read it, do you remember Mr. and Mrs. Beaver? Or saw the movie? They are confident that even though winter has been going on for so long, there are prophecies that will be fulfilled that will break the witch's spell and will bring life back to Narnia. Well, in our text today, Paul functions for us a little bit like Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. He is fully aware of the condition of the world in which we live. In fact, he has experienced some of the worst of it. But he is quick to remind us that this condition will not last. It's temporary. And his intention is for us to be able to navigate this world successfully to the glory of God by maintaining our focus on our future hope in Christ. And so Paul's argument here is centered around two words. And these are the words that I'm going to focus on this morning. You saw them in the title of my sermon, Hopeful Groaning. These two words are groaning and hope. Groaning is the response that we have to our present reality where suffering plays a significant part. Even when we have good lives, when our lives are good, we recognize that we continue to face suffering and ultimately death. Hope is the response to the promised glory that we will enjoy in the presence of God if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And to go back to C.S. Lewis's metaphor, we are living in a perpetual winter, you and I. We are living in a perpetual winter. But not only is Christmas coming, but spring and summer as well. And so I want to get into the text this morning. And, and you know, this, this is, this passage of Scripture is the most comprehensive description that Paul gives us that shows us the scope, the full scope of our redemption in Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what appealed to me so much about this passage of Scripture as I considered what to share with you this morning. So we're going to begin, we're going to look at groaning, and then we're going to look at hope. And we're going to begin with creation's groaning. Verse 18 says this, uh, it refers to the sufferings of this present time. And I believe that Paul specifically has in mind the sufferings of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, That is, who he has been talking about up to this point in this chapter, if you're familiar with chapter 8. But in verse 19, he widens his focus. And through verse 22, he writes of the suffering of the created world. 
And he very creatively describes this by personifying creation. He tells us that the whole creation is groaning. The, word, the Greek word translated groaning literally means to moan jointly. To moan jointly. It's not a singular groan or groaning. It's collective. All of the physical world of matter, plants, and animals is groaning together under the weight of its own suffering. It is groaning because, Paul says in verse 20, it has been subjected to futility. And then in verse 21, it is in bondage to corruption. And it has been subjected to these things not by its own choice. It has been foisted upon it because of the rebellion of mankind against God. And you can read all about that in Genesis chapter 3 if you want the details. But the word translated futility here in the ESV is actually translated frustration in the New International Version. And I think that's a better, a better translation because it actually means useless or unprofitable. In the context, it carries the idea that the world is unable to do what it is supposed to do. It doesn't work the way it was made to work. Bondage to corruption speaks of the fact that instead of always being a means of benefit and flourishing for the rest of creation, for created beings, it has become destructive, harmful, and life-threatening. Just think of earthquakes. We've had one recently. Tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, tsunamis, erupting volcanoes. We live at the foot of a volcano. Will it erupt someday? We don't know. But erupting volcanoes and the devastation, we see that in in, uh, Hawaii. These are normal parts of the natural world, and we are accustomed to these things, and we know that when they happen, they do often bring destruction and death. But these were not part of God's original creation, and Paul, figuratively speaking, says that the whole creation knows that something is very wrong, and it groans because of its own inability to perform in the way that God intended it to perform when he first created it. What a picture he's painting for us. It's it's powerful. He is saying that the entire universe is distressed, that it is not fulfilling its intended purpose, and it groans under the weight of that reality. So the whole creation, even as beautiful as it is, is groaning, realizing that something is wrong. Then in verse 23, Paul brings it back to us. Not only is the creation groaning, he says, but we are groaning. And when he says we, he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit are groaning. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is speaking specifically of Christians here, and he is not referring to all of humankind. However, we all understand that all of humanity groans as a result of the futility and the bondage that exists in our world. And we see the destruction that comes to human life through natural disasters. Everybody sees this. As I mentioned earlier, the devastating earthquake in Turkey where tens of thousands of people have lost their lives and so many others have been displaced. 
We see the dev, uh, we also see conflicts between nations and peoples, and our hearts ache for those who are suffering because of war right now in Ukraine, because of conflict in Africa and elsewhere. Haiti has spiraled down to a situation of absolute lawlessness. And we think of the terrible train wreck that took place in, in Greece just last week and mass shootings that we hear about all of the time here in the U.S. All people, not just believers, groan under the weight of these tragedies. And even bringing it down to individual lives. So many of us, even if we have good lives, as I mentioned earlier, we still suffer disappointment, loss, conflict, and ultimately we all face the same end death. But here particularly, Paul's focus is on, on, on believers, and, and we see that specifically in verse 18 and verse 23. In verse 18, he talks about the glory that is to be revealed to us, that is those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Christians groan for all of these same reasons that non-Christians groan, because we know this world is not right. But we groan for other reasons as well. Christians groan because we've come to understand how sinful we really are and how holy God is. And we are frustrated because we continue to struggle with sin and dishonor our wonderful holy God. We continue to be attracted by its allure. And we find that we have to keep coming back to God in repentance to ask forgiveness over and over again. And what is so beautiful about God is that he forgives us. He forgives us, but we groan, we ache inside because we know that he deserves so much more from us. Paul describes this in Romans 7, just the previous chapter. Beginning in verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As followers of Jesus Christ, we groan because we struggle with sin and we long for that day when we are going to have complete victory over it. It's going to be gone. We won't have to struggle anymore. The groaning will be over. We also groan as Christians because of mistreatment, because of persecution. Now, I know that we don't suffer much persecution here in the United States, but really this is one of the main things that Paul has in mind, I believe, because in verse 18 when he talks about the suffering of this present time, 
I think Paul's main focus there is the persecution that he endured as a follower of Christ and that other people endured as a follower of Christ. And you can, you can read all about Paul's sufferings. It was funny when I was uh, preparing for this and I realized how much of it is in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 21 through 28. You can read all about the opposition against Paul and his suffering for the gospel. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, he even gives a list of all the things that he has suffered. And so Christians groan because of suffering persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, as I mentioned, in the U.S., we don't find ourselves under persecution at the moment, but we do find ourselves increasingly, increasingly marginalized and maligned because of holding fast to the truth of God's word. But we know that we have brothers and sisters around this world who are suffering deeply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So we are groaning. The world is groaning. But I want to point out, importantly, that this is a certain kind of groaning. Paul says that for both the creation and the followers of Christ, this is groaning but not being completely overcome by this. In 22, he says, The whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. In pains of childbirth until now. In verse 23, he says, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The groaning that Paul is talking about is not the last moaning gasp of death. There is anticipation. There is expectation in the world's groaning and in our groaning as believers. Paul likens the creation's groaning to that of a woman about to give birth. Now, we know that childbirth is the most painful and sometimes drawn-out experience a woman can suffer. I, I admire women. What you ha- I cannot imagine what you have to go through to give birth to a child. And my wife did it four times. And uh, I, I am amazed that after the first time, she didn't say, that's it, never again. And I'm glad that she didn't say that because I have four wonderful, we have four wonderful children. (laughs) But that suffering, that pain in normal circumstances ends with joy at the birth of a child. We all can relate to that. It is suffering that is rewarded with joy. The world is groaning. But it is groaning with expectation that this is temporary pain and it will end joyfully. Paul also describes the believer's groaning as that which is anticipating an end that will lead to completeness and joy. And so that brings me to the second word that we want to look at this morning. The first word is groaning. The second word is hope. First, I want to look at the creation's hope. A woman groaning in the pain of childbirth has the birth of that child to look forward to. That is her hope in the midst of her suffering. What is creation's hope? Well, verses 19 to 21 says it this way. 
The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation's hope is directly linked to our hope, to those who belong to Christ. It's linked to the the glory of the children of God is what as how Paul puts it. It was the rebellion of humanity that brought the situation onto the created world that they are under now. It brought the futility. It brought the bondage to corruption. And it will now be the redemption of humanity that will restore the creation to its proper function and relieve it of its groaning. It will be free from the corruption that degrades it and causes it to be destructive, harmful, and life-threatening, as I said before. And it will be the source of perfect balance and sustenance for all of the creatures living in it when the redemption of God's people is complete. That's a great hope. And that is what the world is hoping for. I don't mean the world system. I mean the creation, the physical creation is looking forward to the day when we will be complete and it will be complete as well. And right now it is waiting with eager longing. The Greek words translated here convey the idea of somebody looking for something to happen with intense anticipation and certainty. Like when you're waiting for something or someone to arrive and you keep looking out the window. You know, you're, you're looking, you're looking, you're waiting because you know it's going to happen. I don't know if you've ever read the J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament, but this is how J.B. Phillips, it's not a literal translation of the New Testament. This is how J.B. Phillips translates verses 19 through 21. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. The world of creation cannot as yet see reality because it chooses to be blind, but because in God's purpose it has been so limited, yet it has been given hope. And the hope is that in the end, the whole of created life will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and have its share in that magnificent liberty which can only belong to the children of God. That is the hope of creation. So what is our hope? In the same way that the creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, we are waiting for our redemption. Paul describes that uh, what we are waiting for as two specific realities. The first is adoption as sons, adoption as his children. Paul has already spoken of adoption as sons in verse 15. We didn't read verse 15, but there, <clears throat> excuse me, he speaks as though it has already happened. This is what he says You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But here in verse 23, he says that we are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. He's speaking as though it's in the future. Is it present or is it future? Well, it's both. 
Our adoption as the children of God has been initiated by our faith in Jesus' death on the cross in our place. If we have put our faith in Christ, our adoption has been initiated. When we put our faith in Christ, we are received into the family of God, and nothing will ever change that. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ. But we have not yet attained the fullness of that adoption. In fact, the fullness of this first reality, adoption as sons, requires the second reality that Paul says we are waiting for as well, the redemption of our bodies. Remember, we began by looking at the suffering we experience in this world, in this life. Our current bodies are one of the reasons that we suffer. We get sick, we get injured, we age, and we eventually die. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's great treatise on the resurrection from the dead, he tells us that these perishable bodies in which we live are insufficient for us to receive the full promise of eternal life. This is how he puts it. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? These mortal bodies are subject to suffering, death, and decay, but subjection to suffering, death, and decay is only a temporary condition. When Christ returns, those who belong to him will be raised from the dead with imperishable bodies in a restored world where suffering, death, and decay no longer exist. Do you believe that? I believe that. It is true. It is not a myth. It is not wishful thinking. This is yesterday uh, in the last session, one of the uh, second to last session, one of the pastors who preached was from downtown Cornerstone Church in Seattle. And one emphasis he made was he, he referenced Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about true truth. And he, he talked about real reality. Real reality. That's what we're talking about here. That's what Paul is talking about here. Real reality. This is my hope as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is your hope as a follower of Jesus Christ. And when I say hope, when Paul talks about hope, when he writes about hope, we're not talking about hoping that something's going to happen that may or may not happen. That's how we talk about hope in this life. What Paul's talking about when he talks about hope, what the Bible means, what the New Testament Christian hope is, it is a certainty that is based upon the promises of the God who does not lie and who through his own son Jesus Christ has already accomplished what's going to take place for us. So if you have put your faith in Christ, this is a certain reality to which you are looking forward. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ and you don't have this hope, I would love to talk with you after the service this morning and explain more how you can have this hope. As I mentioned earlier, Paul shows us here the scope 
of the salvation, the scope of the deliverance that Jesus Christ accomplished in his death on the cross. Jesus died to redeem and restore all of creation to God. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says it this way. Again, it's Paul writing, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then Paul wraps up this passage in verses 24 and 25 by encouraging us to stand in the hope of this universe-wide salvation. It is not something that we can see right now. It is not something that we can handle and touch. And so we must wait patiently along with the rest of creation, standing on tiptoes, looking and expecting and believing. For now, all of creation is groaning. For now, we are groaning. But we're waiting with eager expectation, as Paul says, for the revealing of the sons of God, which will bring about the restoration of all things when Christ returns. There is hope. There is certain hope in the midst of our groaning because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead in order to make all things, all things, including us, new, completely new. So here we are, living in the winter of this weary world. Living in the winter of this weary world, as Dr. Stephen Garber said. But as we groan, we are hopeful, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we are given the privilege of proclaiming the message that through Jesus Christ, the warmth of spring and summer are coming to this world where right now it's always winter and never Christmas. Will you pray with me? Lord, there is one, two words that we can say when we realize the reality of what you have prepared for us. And that is thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much that the groaning of this world is not all there is. That the groaning of this world is not going to go on and on and on and on. But that you loved this world and you loved us and you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to repair the damage that we had done because of our sin and to cleanse us and make us right with you so that we can not only enjoy the future with you, but our lives here and now can find joy and we can bring glory to you as we serve you and serve each other and love one another and love those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful in all of these things. As we groan, help us, Lord, to groan with joy. For your glory, amen.